Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Clear and Convincing, the show that looks at criminal cases from the perspective of the courts, not the court of public opinion. I'm Lisa O'Brien. I'm podcasting from New Orleans, Louisiana. In this bonus episode, I'll be interviewing Kelly Blackburn, the trial bureau chief at the Montgomery County District Attorney's Office. Mr. Blackburn assumed responsibility for the Larynx Swearingen case in 2017. We'll talk about Swearingen's request for DNA testing. Texas Chapter 64, which governs post-conviction DNA testing, the agreed testing, which was uh, done in 2017, the inconclusive results, and Swearingen's plot with Anthony Shore, which was discovered in 2017. And Mr. Blackburn, have I got you on the line? Okay. I believe so. I've, I've never run this before, so I'm warning you now. There will be technical difficulties. Okay. So, um, first off, if you want to just take a couple minutes and introduce yourself to the listeners. Oh, goodness. Um, my name is Kelly Blackburn. I'm a, currently a prosecutor at the Montgomery County District Attorney's Office. Um, I'm in charge of our trial bureau, um, which consists of about 50, 50 prosecutors. Um, I came to Montgomery County in 2010 um, from the U.S. Attorney's Office, and before that I was with the Harris County District Attorney's Office, which is in Houston, for 10 years. Okay, and you are, um, excuse me, now it says you went to, uh, where was it, I'm looking at your bio, you went to Southwest Texas School of Law. South Texas, Texas College Tech. of Law, yes. South Texas College Correct. of Law, okay, and Texas Tech, okay. Yes. LSU fan, but <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't think we ever play y'all. I know, so yeah. So, all right, and um, one of the things I wanted to start off with, um, there's a misconception in the public, and it tends to be uh, kind of fueled by the media. There's a belief that if the evidence is there and it can be DNA tested with the methods that we have available now, every person in prison is entitled to have that DNA tested and have their convictions proven to be just. And um, that is, of course, not really how it works. What are the requirements under Chapter 64 governing post-conviction DNA testing in Texas? So, you know, Chapter 64, it's, it, does, it, is, it allows defendants um, that have been previously convicted and had their, their cases already heard through the courts and their appeals upheld, it allows, it gives them an avenue um, to, to get future DNA testing if it's available. Um, but it is restrictive. I mean, there are some, you know, um, there are quite a few um, hoops that you got to jump through in order to be able to get um, Chapter 64 DNA testing. It's it's pretty restrictive, um, and rightly so. I mean, we don't want every single defendant um, that's sitting in in TDC um, with nothing to do but but file motion after motion um, to try to get their case overturned to be able to continually. Um, Draw up evidence for for testing, regardless of whether it made any difference. I mean, you had when when Chapter 64 first came about. I mean, 
we were receiving motion after motion after motion from defendants that were wanting DNA testing, even though they previously confessed to the offense, um, or that they were on video committing the offense, or that Correct. there had already been DNA testing um, done on their case, and, and they were the DNA came back to them. You know, those were the majority of the of the Chapter 64 motions that were going through all the DA's offices, um, and so. You know, just because there's evidence available, the defendant still has to prove that one DNA testing was never done. And when I'm talking about this, I'm not a, I'm not an appellate attorney. I'm a trial attorney, so you know, um, I'm I'm familiar with Chapter 64, but I don't know the ins and outs. Um, right. But you, so but but just like briefly, you you have to prove that there's that there's evidence available to be tested. Um, and it defines what kind of evidence that is in Chapter 64, meaning um, hair fibers, semen, blood, some type of physical evidence that you could actually get DNA from. And you basically have to prove um, that if that was tested, that it likely contains some type of biological evidence that, that you could get DNA from, that it has never been tested before, um, or that it's been tested but the lab that it was tested at um, is no longer in business because it was shut down by the Texas Forensic Science Commission. Um, in the state right. of Texas, the majority of our, our like Larry Swearing and all of his all of his evidence was tested at the DPS crime lab in Houston. I mean, which is Correct. which is about as good as it gets. So, you know, but the, the so I guess that's that's an easy way to I guess or a, a long way to answer your question. So. Right, and that is, and, and that's something the public. The public doesn't they don't they don't understand when DNA testing is denied for somebody like Swearingen or the Rodney Reed case out of Bastrop. They think it's the court right. being unfair and the prosecutor keeping an innocent man in prison when in reality right. it's because the burden of proof is on him and he did not prove that he was entitled to the testing he wanted. Well, then what you you know what you also have to prove under Chapter 64, which Swearingen was never able to prove. Now, specifically talking about his case, um, or, or even to show, was that you basically have to show that that if we do this DNA testing, and there are exculpatory results that come from it, meaning if there's an unknown profile that's obtained, that 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 the courts have turned determined that if there's an unknown profile obtained through DNA testing, that it's kind of per se exculpatory. It's what they call mm-hmm. it's exculpatory evidence. And that that exculpatory evidence, if a jury heard it during the trial of the case, that the defendant would likely have been acquitted. And so Correct. that's the crux of that's you know, when you go back and read all these opinions, which there are multiple of them, um, both federal and state opinions denying latest wins and DNA testing they they talk about and they lay out you know the um, the mountain of circumstantial evidence absent forensic evidence that connected Larry Swearingen to the death, the kidnapping and rape of Melissa Trotter, and so Swearingen was never able to to overcome that and um you know we fought and the funny thing about it like it, this the, this case is kind of an anomaly because our office was always willing to do any kind of DNA testing that they wanted outside of Chapter 64 um, because we were never going to agree that if there were exculpatory results or if there were unknown profiles obtained in the, in the, during the testing that the trial would have been different than it was. We were never going to agree with, with that, which is what we would have had to have done if we were to agree to do it under Chapter 64. But we were Correct. always willing to send anything that the defense wanted, which ultimately is what happened. Um, you know, w- when we tried to, to, to test the evidence that they wanted tested outside of Chapter 64, they had um, the district court order us to stop us from doing it. Um, Correct. And basically delayed his execution for two more years while this judge, Judge Kelly Case, sat on the, the bench in the ninth district court. Um, and so we were just we were but we were never going to agree to do it under chapter 64 and any, every single time that that judge case ordered it to be done under chapter 64 the court of criminal appeals um shot him down every single Correct. time so um 
and eventually they realized that that they weren't going to get it done, which in reality they didn't want it done. You know, um, the the best thing they wanted was to be able to sit there and say, look, there's all this evidence, and it's never been tested for DNA. Um, right. And be able to lose the fact that and, and, and pour more doubt, which there was none in this case. Um, but eventually, once they realized they weren't going to get into Chapter 64, they agreed um, to do it outside of Chapter 64. Right. And that is, like I said, that's an option. But in Swearingen's case, the the blood fake flakes that really weren't from, quote, under Melissa's fingernails, they were found in the sample from one hand at a later date or found on a stick used in collection. So, um, but the jury knew that that DNA did not belong to swearing in. Correct. That, so, you know, that's what they've made a big deal out of. And they, they, they claim that there was blood found underneath the fingernails of, of Melissa Trotter. And you're the first person um, at least in the media that I've spoken to that's actually got it right in regards to that's not where the blood was found. Um, Correct. The scrapings from underneath her fingernails were tested previously and, and, and nothing was located. It was only until they started, till the trace examiner started swabbing the scrapings for, um, for DNA that she noticed the very small bright red um, flakes um, that Correct. was within the scrapings. And, and when she, if you talk to her, when she put those, they, when she put them all together, they were about the size or smaller than the size of a ballpoint pen, tip of a ballpoint pen. Right. And so, as I the, recall reading, all of that. In in one of the appendices I recall reading, she actually didn't even visualize them with the naked eye. She didn't find them until she looked under a microscope. Correct. No, it was very small. And despite the, the size of it, how small that it was, it still came up with a very strong DNA profile, which, which goes right. to show that more that, it's a, that it was a fresh sample um, along with the color of it, that it, it hadn't been sitting out in the National Forest, in the Sam Houston National Forest for, for 25 days. Or, right, correct. So, and that's, I'm not really media. I'm a paralegal. I do this <laughs> on the side as a hobby, and when I'm getting ready for a show, I'm reading briefs and court opinions to get the facts of the yeah. cases, rather I than... You, I, I listened to your other... Um, I listened to the, the very first podcast that you yes. did, and you probably have a, a... You have about as good a grasp on the actual facts of the case um, as anyone I've ever spoken to, so... Thank you. So I don't know what you're reading or where you're getting it, but it's, you've, you've pretty much... <laughs> <laughs> defense, so. prosecution, state briefs, and right. orders, and there's yeah. a – all I could do this last show was read the orders and opinions Yeah, because and I had a, about a ream and a half of paper. Yeah. Anyone that's taken the time there's – a, there's, a, there's a handful of reporters that I've dealt with over the last couple of years that have taken the time to read what this case really is all about. They have no doubt as to – the guilt of Larry Swearingen, and you know, it's you just but you have to spend time reading it. This case can't be explained in sound bites. So, correct. And I also, um, in full disclosure, anything that Bryce Benjet says, I kind of assume the opposite is true. Okay. <laughs> well, you know, it's it's the thing with dealing with the Innocence Project, and even attorneys like that, like James Ridding, you know, they they want to defend their client, but they also have an ultimate goal, which is to, you know, abolish the death. Undermine. And so, yeah. And anything they can do to undermine anyone who's part of that process, be it DPS, you know, analysts, lawyers, prosecutors, judges, police officers, you know, they're willing to do that. You know, and it's unfortunately when you're dealing with, with that type of adversary, it's for them, it's, it's the ends justify the means and everything, including the truth and the facts are fair game in regards to, um, fighting their case, and it's it's difficult when Correct. you're fighting against someone who doesn't really play by the rules when you're trying to. Yeah, and that's the part I find most objectionable because, you know, they they besmirch Dr. Carter's professionalism, her uh, reputation, by saying she deliberately 
lied about the facts to tailor her opinion to the prosecution's case. Right. When that was the furthest thing from the truth. And their their experts were the ones that were giving junk, were doing junk science by looking at as one of the, I think it was the Texas Court of Criminal Appeal judges said they were looking at a couple of twigs and ignoring the forest of inculpatory evidence. Yes, and that's the thing, you know, and that's that's one reason why our office we were we were willing to play. We had a, a family in the Trotters who were extremely strong. Um, they trusted everything that we that we were willing to do, and, we, and they were willing to go along with us and play the game, the slow game that we played, and and. You know, we did this DNA testing and did everything they wanted because we knew um, how the strength of our case, and we knew and that Larry Swearingen was guilty of this crime. And so we weren't scared of any results that we were going to get um, out of any DNA testing or other forensic testing that was going to be done. The, the facts are what they are, and they were going to be that regardless of what came back um, in the DNA testing. And so, you know, eventually I think – I don't know if we just wore them down. They have – they eventually had one more avenue they could try was the, was the 11073 writs, um, you know, and then in the courts, like I say, if you read about this case and read the actual evidence, like the courts have been doing throughout all these years, they were aware of the guilt of latest range. And, and so Correct. it was, it was good that they, you know, that they were getting it right too and, and knowing what was actually trying to be done. So. Correct, and and that was I was I was a little worried when they waited until the eighth to file a writ uh, with the right. clerk Montgomery County clerk, and then I thought, oh well, it'll go. It has to go to TCCA, and you know, wonder if they'll stay the execution and take some time right. to consider it, and I was extremely surprised that they disposed of it as quickly as they did. But I think it's been up there so many times. Correct. There's just that's, no room. We, yes. I mean, you know, and the thing is, if you read, like I spoke to the uh, a reporter for the Washington Post before, if you just read James Ridding's writ, you would think that, that we've got to be executing an innocent man. Luckily, the, right. the the courts are you know Larry Swearingen is no stranger to them. <laughs> they're they're well aware of Larry Swearingen. They're well aware of James Ridding. They're well aware of what's what's being litigated throughout the years in this case. Um, you know, and also luckily we've got we were we were we were waiting for this to come down. As soon as it came down, we were ready to answer. We had an idea what they were going to be alleging, and so we were. We have our, our appellate lawyer's name is Bill Delmore. He has been a prosecutor for over 30 years. He worked in Harris County in Houston for over 25 years, and he was in charge of all of their entire appellate bureau. And he's one of the most brilliant appellate lawyers that I've that I've ever worked with. And so, you know, we're luckily we had him. His reply brief to their writ was amazing, um, and laid out exactly what the case was. And if you were to read it. Um, you know, it just I, it's there's just no doubt. I mean, and the courts and the courts know it, and that, I think that's the thing. It's like he just no he's no stranger to them, and so even given that, the amount of evidence that they were claiming under their 11073 writ, we were and had been preparing the trotters that there was a a high likelihood um, that they were going to stay the execution, and I was preparing myself to be involved in a two to three week, week evidentiary hearing. Um, like we had been done the last two two times um, before we could finally get Larry Swearingen executed, um, but we were, I guess, as surprised as you were that they acted as quickly as they did and and as strongly as they did with their wording. And you know, you don't you don't see appellate courts like the CCA and the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals in New Orleans use the kind of language that they used in their orders um, denying yeah. these, these pills. I mean, so. Once I started reading that, I, I, I knew there was a very high likelihood that we were going to be successful this time. My my opinion, and it's solely speculation, but I believe that the last-minute tactics 
over the course of this saga left a very bad taste in a lot of judges' mouths, so to speak. Yeah. Because there's another brief, and, and I'd like to commend Mr. Delmore. I did read every one of his oppositions and, and everything I could get my hand on, hands on as far as the, the trial court record. Um, and he is brilliant, uh, not only tactician, but just the facts that he conveys, you can have no doubt whatsoever uh, yeah. about the case. Yeah, we were very lucky. Yeah. But uh, – no, I think that, that uh, there was another instance, I think in 2009, where they actually said the late filings were showing a lack of respect for not only the court, but for Mr. Swearingen's life. Yes. And I believe and that was the Fifth Circuit. Yes. Yeah, the, and we were expecting it to do the same thing, but I guess, you know, I guess what he filed it 15 days before or – this time he still, you know, he still, he still did it in an, in an amount of time that he felt wouldn't give them a chance to fully digest what he was he was writing. Um, Correct. And you know, the Wednesday before the execution, they had also filed a complaint with the Texas Forensic Commission um, that was supposed to be heard in regards to the DPS analyst, but they claimed um, that they claimed that the DPS had retracted their their testimony, yes. which was also not true. Um, but I was waiting for that to be heard, and they withdrew that complaint. They was never even heard. Um, oh, interesting. I I did not. Yeah. I know that they. I think that being kind of smacked down by the Fifth Circuit, who published the two letters right. as an appendix to their opinion, I think that probably led them to reconsider. Uh, whether they wanted to cross that line in the sand. Yeah, I don't, you know, and I don't, the thing is, is that when, whenever the real experts have looked at the evidence and, and the opinions of their experts, it's, they've always, they've never been able to hold up. They, any expert they've ex- ever presented um, and every, any opinion that they've ever had has, once you put them under oath on the stand and confront them with the totality of all the facts and evidence that we have in this case, their opinions Correct. never hold water, and they never seem Correct. credible. But what ha- what happens is is that the Innocence Project and all these attorneys that are representing these death row inmates, they they try to operate in a like in an environment of fear. And so the easiest way to try to get or manipulate um, evidence or statements or testimony is to do what they did. They get they find an expert who says, you know, this trace examiner shouldn't have said this. Um, she was lying, and she, there's no way she could have said or known this. And then they file a complaint with the Texas Forensic Commission, which is the agency in Texas that oversees all forensic evidence and all forensic, um, I guess, testing within the state of Texas. Um, and so if you're a DNA expert or you run a DNA lab or you're DPS and you have people that are working for you, it makes you very mm-hmm. nervous to get a complaint um, that's going to be heard by the Texas Forensic Commission because they can cost you your license. Right. And so they do that not because it's legitimate. They, they file these complaints not because they actually have a complaint, but in order to scare um, and intimidate other legitimate people who are just trying to do the right thing and are operating in a non-biased fashion um, to get them to say, well, maybe – Maybe she shouldn't have said this, or even though she did say this, you know, this is what she should have said. Mm-hmm. Um, but the ten, the Texas Friends Commission, there. Go ahead. I, I was I'm, I apologize. I was, I was going to say, and that's the other hypocrisy. When a prosecutor, a, a state witness, a state forensic witness, when they make a mistake or a misstatement. It's a lie, but then you have someone like Larry Swearingen, who's lying his butt off his entire life, and well, it's all justified. It's not a big deal. It's you know he was scared. He wanted his attorneys to do their jobs or whatever whatever excuse they come up with, or he right. was mistaken. 
And yes, but everything, I mean, everything, the opposition is lying all the time. And that's another right. thing. You know, sometimes you may not like what they're saying, but that doesn't make it untrue. Right. You know, but that's what sells, you know, and, and all they had left was, you know, the the um, public opinion, you know, and that's that's to try to change or sway, you know, public opinion. And and that's the kind of stuff that people listen to. They don't want people don't want to hear that law enforcement and um, actually does an extremely good job, you know, and is extremely qualified in what they do. And when you look at what was actually done in this case and how much forensic evidence was actually tested and mm-hmm. um, to the link to the links they went to make sure that everything was done correctly and the type of experts they used and how qualified they actually were. I mean, that's that you never, never hear about. And these prosecutors that tried this case, um, you know, they did an incredible job and the, the detectives that, that investigated it, the stuff that they were doing in this case wasn't happening back in 1999. People weren't doing that mm-hmm. kind of stuff, meaning the type of forensic evidence and testing and invite, you know, cell phone type information that they were doing and getting. Um, that stuff wasn't happening back then. Um, right. So, you know, and so, you know, it's just like they, in their writ, they attacked the cell phone testimony, which tracks his whereabouts um, during um, December the 8th. And um, if you read what their experts said, you know, you would think that they were just putting up a bunch of junk science in regards to the cell phones. But when you actually read the testimony and read who they got to, to come testify, they got the, the head of operations for GTE, the guy who, Correct. who you know, not just, not just a detective or somebody who knows a little bit about cell phones. They got the head of operations of GTE who – who supervises the engineers who go out and build these cell these cell sites? And the map that they presented was one of the most detailed. It's it's the gold standard of cell phone maps. So we the experts we spoke to um, about the cell phone information said that, that that you don't you don't normally get that type of of topography and information in regards to the strength of cell phone, of, of cell site towers. And um, but you would never know that by you know, reading the paper or by reading um, the motions filed by James Renning. Correct. I, I totally agree. And, you know, this is a man, they got the person who was most intimately familiar with the equipment and how it worked. Correct. And, of course, they didn't say anything about him. They acted as though he didn't testify at all, that it was just yes. the – Montgomery County Sheriff's detective. Yes. So yeah. that was the first thing that I read that, you know, they got somebody from GTE. Well, why aren't they saying anything about him? And it's funny right. um, when you read Judge Case's uh, 2014 order granting DNA testing to Swearingen, you can tell when you read it, he adopted their findings their proposed findings because it's got facts in there that they claim they've established that in reality have never been established. One of which is that the cell phone data shows swearing and going south, not north. Right. Or, yeah, you know, I can you know, do, you could do an entire podcast on, yeah. On, um, judge Kelly case and our relationship with him. Um, but, but yes, it's, you know, him being on the bench in the Ninth District Court for the three and a half years that he was there, um, you know, Larry Swearingen was never he was he was going to make sure that Larry Swearingen was never executed underneath it, under his watch. It was just never going to happen. Yeah. Um, whether it was and, the right thing to do or not. Yeah. And uh, that's it, the problem is is that when you put on judicial robes, advocacy has to end. Agreed. Either way. Right. And, you know, no. but of course, he's a hero because he's defense oriented rather than a, well, he was a prosecutor. Correct. And so, so um, of course, he was beyond fair. 
Um, although I don't think he granted any writs during that period of time. No, they didn't have anything left to file. Like they didn't have anything to really present at that time. The only they had basically two. By the time he took the bench, they had two things they could do. They had the Chapter 64 DNA testing, which they were trying to get done. And if you've ever watched the way that these lawyers that represent um, death row inmates, they don't do things all at once. They don't do things in the most efficient manner they can. Um, they Correct. do things one at a time, and they do them piecemeal. And so Correct. as long as they have – as long as they are still fighting this DNA testing, that's all they're going to do. They're going to do nothing else. Correct. And so once, once they, they finally sent us a letter after the Anthony Shore situation and asked us if we would be willing to, to do DNA testing outside of Chapter 64, which we said that we would, um, anything that they wanted tested, I went personally and um, found it, located it, um, and he, you know, shipped it off. We agreed as to what DNA lab would be doing the testing. Um, and they even went so far as to wanting some, some hair examination done um, from some hairs that were found in the ligature and that were found in the back of Larry Swearingen's truck. And so we went mm-hmm. ahead and agreed to send those off and have that done. Um, and, of course, those hairs were similar to the hairs of Melissa Trotter. And they wanted to do mitochondrial DNA testing on them, and so we agreed to do that too. So once, once we got in a situation where we were going to have to um, do it under Chapter 64, you know, we, were, we were willing to, to eliminate anything they wanted to eliminate and play along with them and do what we had to do because we, one, weren't scared of the results. We knew what they would be, and two, if we, you know, we were going to deal with whatever we received, and two, just, it, gave them, it gave them no reason because the – what they really want is to be able to – they would love to have Larry Swearingen executed and, and be able to say, look, look at all this evidence that was, um, that was not never tested. Never tested. That, that, would, you know, right. that was never tested. Well, they can't say that anymore. You know? Correct. Um, there's, there is no stone that has not been unturned on this case. It's, Larry Swearingen is probably, um, as far as death row inmates or any inmates in the state of Texas, currently serving sentence. Um, the most litigated, most um, evaluated and tested case that's probably ever come through the Texas judicial system, and I've been doing this for 20 years. So correct, I I, I agree. Um, but also, it, that's another thing you mentioned: the piecemeal uh, approach to post-conviction litigation. But in the end, that's what kind of hung swearing in. Because he didn't raise all these issues and develop all these issues at one time. So when he, quote, found new evidence on new issues, the courts said, well, you should have done that. You could have done that before. And they would even yeah, criticize the trial attorneys for not you know, coming up with this at trial. And yet they didn't come up with it for six years after they started representing him. Right, and so and what they normally um, do that's another is, yeah, yeah, I mean, they're really good at rebranding if if that makes any sense, they'll you know they've they they will take a piece of evidence or what was done with it they they'll litigate it one way, call it one thing, and if that gets knocked down, they'll wait a little while, they'll find another expert um to say. The exact same thing, but just rebranded in a different package with a different bow on it and presented to the court again. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, luckily we've had some, you know, our, the, the courts, they were aware of what was going on and, um, and they were not going to have any, any, any of it. So, right. And uh, we mentioned, you mentioned a few minutes ago, the uh, basically the collusion trying to get Anthony Shore who was a serial killer, uh, to admit to killing Melissa Trotter in order to get Swearingen exonerated. And right. one of the things that in my research of Shore, he was apparently convicted of molesting two of his children in January of 1998. Yes. 
and I believe went to prison. He did, yes. And so in December of 1998, wasn't he in Texas Department of Corrections? I'm not sure. I don't, you know, I'm not as familiar with all of the facts of those cases. Okay. Um, I want to, I want to say, I want to say that, that he might've been placed on probation for Ah. molesting his daughters. And then while he was serving that probation, then that's when all the CODIS hits started happening um, on the cold cases where his DNA was started being linked. Um, But I believe he would have been out, um, and working or doing whatever he was doing during the time of Melissa's disappearance. Okay. Um, so, you know, and that, that, that all came about whenever, you know, in Harris County, before we would execute someone or, or as their execution drew near, you would do what was called toss their cell, um, which means basically you go in and search their cell and see what's all in there. And they, and Harris County does that in order to, to lit if they have to litigate any um, claims of mental incompetence or mental retardation, um, anything like that. And so in doing so, they had found a, a number of documents and reports and photographs relating to the Melissa Trotter case. And they held on to that evidence for a few weeks um, before they finally notified us about it because um, they weren't sure what to do with it. <clears throat> and, so once we got that, we aggressively investigated it. Um, I went up personally with two investigators and interviewed Anthony Shore um, on more than one occasion. The Texas Rangers interviewed him. Um, and eventually, I mean, he, from the word go, you know, if you, if you know anything about Anthony Shore and even Larry Swanson, they're kind of cut from the same cloth in regards to <clears throat> their, you know, sociopathic ways. Correct. It's and you know once the gig was up, once once Anthony Shore realized that we were on to him, he's not someone who's going to be kind of made a fool of. He doesn't like for people to think that he's stupid or or to know that he's lying. And so if he's presented with evidence, he's not going to deny it. You know, he's not going to try mm-hmm. to feed you a bunch of bullcrap because um, he wants you to think. You know, he he's, he's constantly trying to get over on you. But if he can't, he won't continue that um, that manipulation. But but in this case, he he kind of thought it was it, the interesting part for him that the play that he had was to yeah we we cook this up. This is what we planned on doing. Um, Swearingen's one of my friends, and he told me that you know he was innocent of the crime, and so I was going to be willing to. Um, on my on my deathbed to confess to the murder of Melissa Trotter, um, right? So, but and even then, when you go ahead, I was going to say, and sure, but but sure also said, you know, he says he's innocent, and I believe him, and he says he thinks I did it, um, which leads me to wonder why then would Swearingen need to tell Shore anything about Melissa Trotter, right? No, exactly. So, I mean, it demonstrates were, Larry were, wasn't as smart as he thought he was. Which is which is kind of a running theme in this case. <laughs> um in regards to Larry. He Clinton. helped he helped the detectives build the case that they built. In a way, he, did, he definitely end. didn't yeah. I mean he he and and the these detectives did a good thing in regards to I'm always when I'm working you know these kind of cases, and it's as long as a defendant or a suspect is cooperating and willing to speak with you and continuing to talk, it doesn't matter if they're confessing to the crime or denying the crime or what they're saying. Just keep them talking. You know, just Correct. keep talking to them. And you know that's what they did a good job in this case doing. And you know you end up basic most of the time they end up hanging themselves because they can't keep their lies straight. Um, you know, they don't they, – they think they're smarter than the detectives are. Um, they think they're smarter than the system is, and eventually they end up getting, you know, trapped, and there's no way out. And and the funny thing in this case, you know, you, you'll read that, that he went to his deathbed never confessing to the murder of Melissa Trotter, and, you know, that's just not true. I mean, he, he gave statements, and then 
the jury heard from an inmate that, or a, a, um, a person who was serving time with Larry Swearingen in the Montgomery County Jail um, that admitted or testified that Larry told him that, yes, I killed her, but I'm just trying to beat the death penalty. Um, Correct. And that guy and wasn't the someone Spanish, was looking at a – yes. And the, you know, the, the letter Spanish letter wrote, had some, gr- some kernels of truth and some false information more likely than not to see – to kind of feel out what – how much do the police know. Correct. And no, the, the the kicker was on the map that he drew for Anthony Shore was a location where he had says he disposed of Melissa's backpack, which had never been found, yes. has never been mentioned in any yes. court proceedings or, or documents. And he described and the backpack. Correct. So, yeah. So, and unfortunately, that was after 19 years um, because it, the divers searched for it in 2017. Yeah, like, you know, if you know um, our elected DA, Brett Ligon, and the way we're trained and, and grow up, I mean, if there's, a, if there's a way to at least say we tried to do something, you know, we're, we're real big on what we call negative evidence. And, um, you know, even though, like, if you have a case and you can test for fingerprints, even though the reality is you're probably not going to get fingerprints, you go ahead Correct. and test for fingerprints. And just to say, look, we did, here it is, and it, it, and it cuts off an argument. And so if we have information and we got a map that's telling us where her backpack may have been thrown over, we're going to do everything we can to, to, to try to locate it. Because one, you never know. It, you it, you right. could find something there. And two, we can now say we've looked, we've, we've searched thoroughly, and, and clearly there's been two hurricanes that have come through you know, Lake Conroe since then, and it feeds into the San Jacinto River, and there's silt, and you're not probably going to find anything, but at least we know that now. Um, Correct. So that's why, we, that's why we did that. Correct. So... Um... But that again, that's that's a confession, because that's not something right. that he could have gotten from any court document or proceeding, which is always his excuse for how he exactly. knew these things. So, um, but do you think uh, or suspect that the attempt to collude with Anthony Shore was his way of kind of? Uh, forcing the DNA issue with Montgomery County to kind of get it because no. he couldn't get it through the courts. No, I don't. You know, I, we were we received that letter from Bryce Benjet, and I think it happened to be around the same time that that the Shore um, investigation was going on. I don't know if the two had anything to do with one another. Um, you know, I think I, I honestly don't know why. I, I, we knew that because we had filed it. There was a there was an execution date, and it got stayed because of a technical error in the clerk's office and the way they presented the warrant, the death warrant. Correct. And so it so it got stayed another ninety days. In my opinion, they finally agreed to the DNA te- to do the DNA testing outside of Chapter sixty four, because they knew they didn't have anything else to. To try and stay the execution The only thing they I, had left was their 11703 writ and so By agreeing to that DNA testing that, that, that got him almost a year and a half Almost two more years that he otherwise Wouldn't have had Right, so no I meant I Larry Swearingen I meant Larry Because we know Larry Swearingen Liked to work outside Of what his attorneys were doing Even though he had zero clue uh, right. Of what he was doing <laughs> But do you think maybe that was his scheme? No, I really to muddy I really the waters just that, enough, or was it? I think that that it was just another way for him to try to. It, it's just it's just another way for him to try to. Yes, like you say, muddy the waters, hoping that if okay. of course if you get a serial killer that confesses to the murder of Moses Trotter and he has evidence that. You know things that that he can use to corroborate it. 
it's in his mind, I think he honestly believes that eventually either a judge or a prosecutor or somebody was going to bite on something he's doing and say, okay, this guy must be, must, must be innocent and, and let him off death row. Like I really believe okay. he felt that. I mean, he did not up until, I mean, the, the Supreme court came down with their denial of his cert at five fifty four, I believe on Wednesday night. And Correct. I can guarantee you up until that time, he did not believe that he was going to be executed. Um, I was was talking to reporters who were real close with him. If you've ever known him, he did not think he was going to die Wednesday. Mm -hmm. Um, And he was not the man that if you ever, if you ever see Larry and you walk in, he's usually that the man that was laying on that gurney was not the man that I, you know, had been seeing and dealing with all these years. Um, He wouldn't even look at us. He he laid there with his eyes shut. Um, and to the very right. end, played you know, played his innocence fiddle. So, and to, to to manipulate, I saw your one of your interviews after the execution, um, and that was one of the reasons when I saw the press release with your phone number as the media contact, I said, oh, I have to call and try and get an interview with this gentleman, because you were very strong. You didn't mince any words. Um, it was one of the – I think it's like a Montgomery County court watcher who has a YouTube channel. Yes, okay. correct. I believe it yeah. was with him. And um, I I feel the same way about Mr. Swearingen that you do. Uh, the manipulation of the system, the manipulation of the public – by him and by his attorneys is something that I don't if you're innocent you don't have to lie you don't have to fudge the facts the facts are on your side when you have to fudge the facts and and tell half truths and uh, claim that you've proven your innocence a thousand times over is when you're really guilty right right and so um, – and unfortunately, someone like Swearingen has zero credibility because he's been proven to have lied so many times throughout this case and the post-conviction that's, process. That's, it is, and the, is. You know, the unfortunate thing is that, like we had talked about before, is that it's difficult to defend this case with um, sound bites, which is what the public wants to listen to. And so, you know, and it's a circumstantial evidence case. He, he didn't confess and he's not on the video killing her, but, you know, it's about as strong a case as I've ever been a part of in regards to the forensic and circumstantial evidence that were, that connected him to this crime. And, Correct. you know, our office came into Brett Ligon took office in 2010. We didn't prosecute Larry Swearingen, and we didn't choose to seek the death penalty on him. We weren't, we had nothing to do with that. Um, Correct. And so we had a brand new set of eyes. You know, we were willing to look at all the evidence and evaluate it. And, and especially the in the last three years that I've been dealing with it, I mean, I'm willing to stand in front of anybody and say that there is no doubt in my mind whatsoever um, that Larry Swearingen is the person that that raped, murdered, and killed Melissa Trotter. You know, the sad thing is, is that's all we talk about is Larry Swearingen. And, Correct. you know, the Trotter, the Trotter family is amazing. They're amazing people. Um, I spent all day Wednesday with them up at the unit. We, we stood together and watched him die. And her 92-year-old grandfather, who served in World War II, was right there um, to watch yeah. it happen. And they're just – and – the people that they are and the, the way that they continue to believe in the system, you know, that's what gives me faith that we're in the, that keeps giving me faith in the system. Even though people want to say, well, it's broken. It took 20 years. It shouldn't have taken that long. Well, in the end, he's right where he needs to be, which is six feet under. Um, and, and we all knew that was going to eventually be the case. We just had to, to do what we had to get there, you know, and she was not his only victim. I mean, there were four other females that he did the exact same thing to, um, except they didn't end up dead. I mean, he's a monster. Correct. Um, Correct. And so he, he got exactly what he deserved Wednesday night. You know. 
on the 25th. I I agree, and and it is unfortunate that we do. We're kind of forced though to talk more about him because we have to talk about why he's guilty. Correct. Rather than being able no, to just talk about Melissa and who she was, and um, but I I firmly believe that if he was facing kidnapping charges, I believe his motive was not so much that she said no, but that once he raped her, he had to kill her because he'd be facing more charges. Well, the difference between... And you can only talk yourself out of so much. (laughs) Right. I mean, Melissa was a really strong person, um, and the difference between her and all of his other victims is that he knew... That you know they were the other victims he had were, were close to him. They were girlfriends. They were um, his wives, his ex-wives. Mm-hmm. They they were they were women that had kids with him, and so they were afraid of him. He felt correct. He didn't feel he didn't have the same fear that they were going to do or say anything um, about what he was doing. Um, but he was facing and you know his ex-wife. I mean he was facing a kidnapping indictment whenever he he abducted Melissa Trotter. I mean he was under indictment in the court of law for, for kidnapping and raping um, his ex-wife at the time. I mean, Correct. So, and I think that probably had a lot to do with it. I mean, that's why she ended up dead and the others didn't. Um, and she scratched him up, and I think she probably got a few good good blows in because he said something about his ribs being sore when he was arrested on the 11th. Yes. He he has to be handcuffed in the front as opposed to the back because he said he had gotten into a fight and his ribs were sore. Mm-hmm. And they noticed scratches on his neck and on his face. I mean, yes. he's a character. When you when you look at when you look at the um, the photos of the, the taking of him in the jail, documenting his injuries, he's standing there, you know, flipping off the camera. I mean, he uh huh. He didn't have a lot of fear. So. Yeah, he he was a he was a dumb badass. What you know? Unfortunately, right. a lot of men mind. in that generation, uh, <laughs> the, right. you know, and he didn't have two brain cells to rub together, really. Right. Um, and he probably, if he'd spent as much time applying himself to school or a job, uh, he would have gone far in life. But he just wanted to scheme and take advantage of whomever he could take advantage of. Right. So, no, and that's um, that's the personality types that that you have. I mean, when you look at Anthony Shore and talk to him, I mean, Anthony Shore's brilliant, and he just used his mind to manipulate and rip people off, and he he brags about it. You know how he was able to get over on people, how he um, it's, to them it's a sense of pride. So, um, and so we'll get to uh, 2018, the DNA testing. The agreed DNA testing was completed, and the results are being portrayed by some media and Innocence Project as exculpatory. No, none of Larry Swearingen's DNA was found. However, right. in reality, none or very little of the evidence even returned any DNA for comparison, as I understand Correct. it. Correct. Yes, out of everything that we tested – there were only five things that returned any suitable um, DNA pro- profile, and they were um, four cigarettes buds that were found next to Melissa Trotter's body. And Correct. It's been known since 1999 that those cigarettes came from the hunters that found her. Correct. Um, they identified them at the scene that those were those cigarette buds, but we went ahead and, and had them tested, and they all, they all came back to the hunters. Um, and then on the, not the ligature portion of the pantyhose, but the part of the pantyhose that, um, was found in Larry Swearingen's mobile home, um, there was a, a, there was a, a very weak male DNA profile found on those pantyhose and Larry Swearingen couldn't be excluded. He wasn't, he wasn't excluded, but he couldn't be included or excluded from the, the results. It, so it was only a partial... Enough. Okay. 
Correct. So, but he wasn't excluded. But I mean, he, wasn't. he was neither included or excluded, and I believe there was another one other test that could neither include or exclude Melissa. Or that may have been a, an earlier pre-trial test that I'm thinking of. Maybe so. There was some hair that was, you know, her hair was, we did mito, mitochondrial DNA testing on her hair, and that might have Correct. been those, those tests. Correct. And then, but at trial, pre-trial, you did have the pantyhose remnant that was found in the trailer. You had his wife's DNA, and I believe it was nuclear DNA. And then you had Swearingen's mitochondrial DNA. Yes. On those. So yes. that links the, the the remnant to him. Yes. Which he has always claimed was planted because it wasn't found the first two times the trailer was searched. But they didn't know pantyhose were involved the first two times the trailer was searched. Right. Yeah, depending on what you said, either they were planted or yeah. Correct, and then well, the the other one is about the the paperwork found near his parents' house, because it wasn't found, you know, between the 11th and the 17th, so it must have been planted. Well, no, paper on the street kind of floats by, and <laughs> you you don't always notice it right away, right. but uh, sometimes they ignore the reality. And everything is supposed to be so precise and so, you know, if it was there on the 11th, by golly, it would have been found right. on the 11th. So, but ignore well, the fact that it has Melissa Trotter's name. Right. No, I mean, that's the thing. It's like, you know, you're fighting a, against a, an opponent that's really not living in reality. And nor do they right. want to live in reality, because if they live in reality, then they're going to be faced with the facts, of which are the true facts, which are extremely strong in this case. And so it's all about just fighting, you know, the ends justify the means. And all we can do is hope that, you know, continue to do what we do and hope that the courts get it right and the courts see through all that, which they did. Um, and I truly believe eventually the, the court of public opinion will also see. And, mo- and most people that I talk to, they see that, but um, – you know, you you can't – if somebody doesn't want to, this is something they can easily if – they, if they don't believe in the death penalty and they want to believe that, that an innocent man is executed, then they're going to pick and choose those facts to to justify that belief. So, Correct. Correct. My hope is always to find that, you know, those few undecided people and just so that they have all the information and then they can believe whatever they want to believe. Right. Whatever they have to believe, but at least they know what you're hearing is not the whole story. And it's not that there are two sides, it's an incomplete story. So, um, but as we, as you alluded, Swearingen was executed on the 6th. On the 25th. That he received on August 21st, 2019. Yes. And I've always thought he he kept his eyes closed because he could not bear to look at the cap, the trotters because he was coward. Well, you know, and I think it, it had gotten out. The one thing that Sandy Trotter that meant the most to her was for him to know that she was there. Um, and when we were, you know, when we were waiting, the one thing that she wanted to know was, will he be able to see me? Will he know that I'm there? And and, if, and the answer to that is yes. I mean, if you ever go into the, the Texas death chamber, um, you're standing in the witness room, and you're within three to three to four feet of the inmate. It's very close. It's very mm-hmm. close quarters. There's nothing but a pane of glass between you. Um, you can hear everything that's going on in the room. And so all he had to do was turn and look over, and he would have saw um, the mother of the woman that he, that he murdered standing there watching him die. But he wasn't going to let her do that. He was not going to give her, her that, that. He wasn't even going to give her that. You know, correct. Um, so he was more concerned about, you know, setting up his innocence and continued claims and trying to let the name of Larry Swearingen live. You know, mm-hmm. and hopefully his uh, his lame attempt to quote 
Jesus is going to come back and bite him on the butt the way all of his other machinations over the course of his life have done. I can only imagine <laughs> what that's so, going to do. I mean, I, I'm guessing he's probably in the bad place right now. <laughs> um, because he never, you know, he never sought forgiveness or redemption for the sin that he committed. At least outwardly, he never did. You know, so. And so, you know, that's uh, you can't get forgiveness if you don't admit that you were wrong. So, um, so yeah, one, I've, there's only one I've person the tra- that. Yeah, yeah, and so, but at least now Melissa can rest in peace. And the public is safe from Larry Swearingen. Yes, and you know the sad part is it's you want to think that that it's over for the Trotters. It's never really going to be over for them. They're always going to wake up every morning, and Melissa Trotter's never going to be be there. But you know, mm-hmm. at least this this part's over. They can they can move on from this and try to now start healing. You know. Um, right. Sandy Trotter's in a, you know, Charlie and Sandy both are, they're um, about as strong a people as I've ever met or dealt with. They, um, they deal with other families that are going through the same thing, and they they support them, um, and or, or they they meet and and talk with other families that are going through, you know, um, the same type of of tragedy that they've gone through and waiting for the killer of their loved one to be executed. And um, they've been a help to a lot of other people um, and will continue to be so, you know? Um, yeah. And that's just kind of the people they are. So, and that, that is an impression that I've gotten on every interview that I've seen. They are more, um, they're more public about their loss and, and their you know, moving forward as best that they can. Um, yeah. But I know from a, a an acquaintance of mine, her daughter was murdered in Texas in Denton area, and it didn't change everything immediately. But the the knowledge that the person who killed her daughter could never hurt anyone again, and he wasn't going to get out of prison. And, you know, he wasn't going to be on the streets ever again. That helped her start the healing process a little bit more than she had done between the murder and and the execution. And it doesn't – that doesn't work that way for everyone, but hopefully for the Trotters it will help. All right, well, I want to thank you for your time. I think we've covered just about everything uh, we need to cover. Okay. And I, I do, I, like I said, I appreciate I appreciate the time. Uh, if you ever have, uh, I know you can't talk about cases while they're going on, but if you ever have anything you want to come on and talk about, uh feel free to reach out to me at the email address. I'd love to have you back. You're a great guest. And now you can go start your Labor Day weekend. Right. (laughs) Right. I hope you have a good weekend too. Thank you. Thank you again for your time. Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. All right. That was Kelly Blackburn, the trial bureau chief of uh, Montgomery County, Texas. Uh, District Attorney's Office and we had a great interview and I'm getting ready to start my Labor Day weekend. Thank you for listening to Clear and Convincing with Lisa O'Brien. If you like our show and want to know more, you can find us on Facebook. Go to our blog at clearandconvincingwordpress.com clearandconvincingpodcast.wordpress.com 
or follow me on Twitter at O'Brien Alliance. We'll be back to our regular schedule on Tuesday, September 3rd, 2019 at 8 p.m. Central. We'll have episode 27 where Michael and I will talk about post-conviction DNA testing, including statutes in Louisiana, Arkansas, Texas, California, and New York. We'll discuss the requirements a convicted person must meet to be entitled to testing and why some high-profile cases over the past decade have had testing requests denied. Until then, have a great return to work on Tuesday, and stay safe. Good night.